Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Welcome to a bonus edition of The Path and the Practice. It's a bonus because I'm speaking with a special guest, Michelle Silverthorne. Michelle is a diversity and inclusion expert who we were fortunate to welcome to Foley and Lardner this summer for a discussion on how to build a racially just workplace. Michelle recently released her first book titled Authentic Diversity, and I thought it was a great excuse to get her on the show. But of course, before talking about Michelle's book or her tips for building an inclusive workplace, I get Michelle to walk us through her professional path, which begins with her growing up in Jamaica and Trinidad, attending Princeton University for undergrad and the University of Michigan for law school, working a number of years in large law firms before leaving practice to become a diversity and inclusion professional. Michelle shares a lot about that. She shares observations, what she learned along the way, and then we transition to talking about her new book. I get her to break down some of the old rules and the new rules of DNI, and I also do a rapid fire round with Michelle where I have her share the top questions she's asked by people trying to navigate the current environment and the new racial justice movement. She provides some succinct and really actionable advice. And also, before we dive in, I do want to say that while this podcast will largely remain dedicated to sharing the stories of the attorneys from Foley and Lardner, I may occasionally weave in bonus episodes like this with special guests who are notable members of the legal community. It's a real privilege to have a platform to have these types of conversations, and I hope you enjoy my discussion with Michelle. Michelle Silverthorne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you for having me on your fantastic podcast. This is really exciting because you are my first special guest. You are the first non-Foley attorney guest on this show. It's a big deal. We have a lot to talk about, so let's go. All right, so Michelle, give me your intro. How do you introduce yourself these days? So yesterday I was actually at a big pharmaceutical company and they introduced me and it was a legal department. And they introduced me as Dr. Silverthorne because it was like the inside joke from all the lawyers. Like, no one ever calls us doctor. So there you go. Uh, Dr. Michelle Silverthorne. No, I'm not. I am Michelle Silverthorne. I am the founder and CEO of Inclusion Nation. If you are at Foley or any of the many companies I have spoken at over the past three and a half months, um, you're very familiar with me. So I founded Inclusion Nation. I went to law school. I went to Michigan Law. So go blue for me and Alexis here. I do a lot of things. I am a consultant. I am a writer. My new book, Authentic Diversity, just came out. I am so excited for it. And as Alexis and I were just talking about, I am also, we are both also uh, remote school teachers, uh, which is not as fun to talk about as talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we won't talk about it, but maybe we will towards the end of seeing depending where this goes. But okay, so before you were... I don't know, Michelle, you're getting kind of big. I almost feel like you're becoming this like celebrity, at least in the legal world consultant. Before you were that, you were not born a DNI professional. Let's start off. Where were you born? Where are you from? No, I wasn't. My journey. I like it. A celebrity legal world DEI consultant. That is how I should introduce myself. Thank you, everybody. It's very specific. This is good. 
So I started out, I grew up in the Caribbean. I grew up in Jamaica. I grew up in Trinidad. And I came to this country when I was 17 years old. I lived in both countries my whole life until then. And so when I came to this country, I went to Princeton and I was there for a few years. I traveled a lot when I went to Princeton. When you grow up in uh, two very small islands, when you have the chance, you will do as much as you can to just get out of anywhere you can. So the four years I was at Princeton, I worked in Kazakhstan. I worked in Peru. I worked for the UN in Geneva. I lived in Botswana because my mom was living there for a bit too. I really spent as much time as I could traveling. Then I went home for a year. And then in 05, I started at Michigan. I was there for a few years. Then I went to New York, practiced at Big Law in New York and Chicago, did that for about four years before I decided that I really wanted to do was teach. And I talk a lot about this in my book, which is the decision that you make. And there's another reason why I taught, why I left, and that can also go into what we talk about later. But I realized that if I wanted to have the impact that I wanted to have in the world that I was in, it was not doing practicing law. It was doing something else. And so I went and I went into the Illinois Supreme Court Commission on Professionalism, which is a wonderful organization. And I worked there for about seven years, actually, I guess six years, six and a half years. And at the end of it, when I left, I was the director of diversity and education, did a lot of CLE programming, did a lot of programming on diversity, attended a lot of diversity programming, which is partly where I can see, you know, here's where we need to get better with it. Here's what people really want when they go to these sessions. Here's what they want to learn, but also here's what they're not being told. You know, here's what they should be learning. Here's what they need to understand when it comes to how are we really going to affect change. Anyway, so I was able to see a lot of those. We put in place some really great policies. And then I left the commission and started Inclusion Nation. It was kind of a three-part reason. Like, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to go out and, you know, speak, speak, you know, about DEI. But in a very short sequence, I had a TED Talk picked up. So I got booked for a TED Talk. I had a really popular article published in the Tribune about unconscious bias. And then I got a book deal, which is the book that was published yesterday. So like I said, celebrity. But by the way, I'm going to back you up. So I appreciate that you just summarized your whole life in two and a half minutes. You're welcome. Great. I'm not going to let you get away with that, though. (laughs) So just backing up quite a bit, actually. I think you said you grew up in Jamaica and Trinidad. Is that right? I did. I did indeed. Yes. Yes, yes, I did. Two beautiful islands that are currently, well, one of them's close to COVID and one of them is experiencing a surge, which is very sad. So, but yes, I love my islands very much. What's it like growing up, growing up there? Because I talk about race a lot, because I talk about, especially talk about being black in America. When I tell people what it was like growing up, I always think of it in the context of race. I spent most of my life in Jamaica. I let my mother's Trinidadian. So we went there a lot, but from the age of about eight until 17, I was in Jamaica. Um, Jamaica is 95% black. And we have some really strong legacies of white colonialism that still exist. And exactly, you know, who are our first presidents, who are the first prime ministers, who are the first principals of our schools and things like that. However, we look at newscasters and they're black. We look at advertising and it is black people. We look at billboards and they're black people. My teachers were black. The engineers were black. The lawyers were black. I grew up in Wakanda. Like, I really did. I grew up in a world where I knew that Black was great. Black was awesome. Black was fine. Black people were funny. Black people were not funny. Black people were great. They were mean. They were everything, right? And to live in that world and to go to a school, I went to an all-girls school, which again was predominantly Black, but not all Black because Jamaica does have a lot of diversity in it as well. 
But to go to that school, to have that experience, to be allowed to be authentically Black and to never have to apologize for it, to never feel like there is are spaces in this world that you aren't welcome to, which there were in Jamaica. Like I said, there's a legacy of colonialism, but it was our country and it was our history and it was our heroes and this was our people and like Blackness is our life. Then you, and then Trinidad is different. Trinidad, I mean, there. I mean, I'm still authentically black in Trinidad, but it is so richly diverse and so ethnically diverse. My grandparents are Chinese. My great grandparents are Chinese and Indian. So again, a different kind of you know ethnic diversity, but still never ever feeling like you are the minority. Never ever feeling like there is a majority culture that does not include you. And then you come here, and it's different, right? You come here, and you are a minority. You come here. And you are the person who is trying to get into the mainstream. That is it. And just to just to set this up even more, for you coming here is straight to Princeton. Like that's the segue. That's it. Just got on a flight, went to college. You're at Princeton. Mm-hmm. You know, when my sister came first, though, she went to Vassar first, and so she was there for four years. And so, you know, I went to Princeton. Gosh, that would have been goodness, two thousand, a long time ago. You know, it's it's different, right? Because when you get there, a lot of my friends are international students. A lot of my friends still are international students. But college is different. College is a space where you can go in and you reinvent yourself and you become someone who you may not have, you may be the same person, but you still try and figure out who you are because you're still growing up. You're still trying to like, formulate that identity. So for me, it was learning about this like very privileged space. And I talk about this in my book. I am part of this hugely privileged space which you don't realize until you leave, right? And then the experiences that you have as a Black person at Princeton, I had some great ones. I had some not great ones. I had people who had wonderful experiences at Princeton. I know people who had terrible experiences at Princeton. But those are the experiences when that is your first entry to America, it really can help define what comes next, right? And so next for me was was New York, was, was Michigan, then it was New York, then it was Chicago, I do want to ask with you, though, to grow up in, like you said, I grew up in Wakanda. And by the way, you're the first person I've talked to who's characterized anything like that ever. And I think that's awesome. But was there culture shock when you get to Princeton and you look around and it's not 95% Black? Like, what are, are you like, this is the America I saw on TV? Like, what, what is your thought process? I spent, I mean, we, we traveled to America a lot. So like, we weren't like, we never, we did, we did come to the States so I had, that wasn't my first ever experience in majority white America. And the thing with America is that you watched on TV, right? You know, we grew up with the same Backstreet Boys and the same NSYNC. We grew up with the same TV shows. We grew up with the same books. Like a lot of it got to the, I mean, America's cultural colonialism was very, very, very evident in Jamaica as well. So you get to the States and you, you get into that world and it's different, but because you have been a majority for so long, I never felt like a minority at the beginning because I felt completely confident in claiming my space because that's what the space all is I knew. One thing I will say about Princeton, I will say that about any organization that does this, the onboarding programs are essential because then you get to the school four days or five days or six days before school starts. And then I was there with my international students cohort. I know that there was a black students one as well. You get to own that campus for a week, right? That campus is yours. And so you, again, feel like you can claim your space in a space that was never designed to claim you, that was never designed for you. And so as you claim that space, that's the work that I was doing at the beginning. But for me, I mean, I, I fit. You know, Princeton was great. I liked it. 
That's so interesting. And this reminds me of a conversation that we had. And it's probably at this point, like, I don't know, maybe three years ago, five years ago. And so for background, as, as Michelle said, we both went to the University of Michigan for law school. We were there at the same time. We are technically the same graduating class, although I was this weird summer starter thing. So I graduated a semester early. Alexis was overeager is what she's trying to say. <laughs> yeah. She really wanted to become a lawyer so early. That accelerated program. <laughs> we knew of each other. We weren't like particularly close in law school. We knew each other from, from around. And I would say over the past many years, we've gotten to know each other more because we're in this space and whatever. But I remember having a discussion with you, and I can't remember how we started talking about it, but about mm-hmm. that very different experience growing up. So like we are the contrast between you know, for me, if you use the term African-American, I technically am African-American in that right. my family is the legacy of slavery, you know, through plantations in South Carolina. And I have not grown up in a majority black environment ever. I've always been in predominantly white institutions. And so what you just said about that comfort and claiming your space, growing up in a situation where you weren't really othered, really, you know, in any way. But I remember us having a discussion about, maybe it was even about diversity. It was at Navy Pair about, in about 2013 or 14. Yeah. And it was something that was so interesting to me because up until then, I don't know that I fully appreciated how different our perspectives were. And that although we, I think Mm -hmm. we agree on most things, you were just sort of like, I grew up in a world you couldn't call it Wakanda then because there was no Black Panther head. There was out. no Wakanda. But yet. you were like, I grew up in a world where every everything was black. Like you said, black newscasters, black this, black that. I come here, it all feels white. Like whether or not there's, you know, four black people in the room or not. Mm-hmm. And so, because I think even my question was like, you've always seemed so comfortable in white spaces. Why is that? Right. And I, I wish I could remember how we exactly got on it, but it was so interesting because it was the first time you've been like, listen, like this is where I grew up. To me, a a lot of this is white spaces. Even when you have your 13% African-American. Still white space. Yes. And I did not have that perspective because that was not, for me, I was like, hey, we got our 13% in here. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 13's great. My school had, you know, 1,300 black kids. Like, and the thing with white, you know, in America, it feels like, and again, this is not universal. Like people's personalities are different, right? People's experiences are different. I have a lot of Black West Indian friends who felt that discrimination from day one, who felt that exclusion from day one. Everyone has a different story and a different path. You know, for me, my particular path was recognizing that, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, for people who have such different opinions, what, what does diverse mean to you, right? So like, okay, if we have six Black people in the room, six black people in the room and there's like 90 white folks in the room, that room, you know, because we had that six black people though, then we are going to have diversity, right? We had two black kids in our class. That means our class has diversity. We had, you know, the, the four black, you know, executives sitting on our 20 person executive team. That means we have diversity. I'm like, what? No, it doesn't. Like, it means you had, you had, you had, you had, you welcome, you had two black kids in your classroom. Congratulations. Right. So I think it's like a different perspective on what it means to be represented. For me, when I look at representation, you know, when I come from where I came from, representation was, I was in every room, right? And then you come here and it's so different. It feels like you have to prove yourself. You are only in that room because someone let you in. What? What is that? You are only in that room because someone lowered the bar. Come on, what is, get out of that with that. Like, that is ridiculous. You are only in that room because of affirmative action. Please, why do we keep on saying that you are not qualified to be there, right? I am qualified to be in any room. 
So I really want people to get away from this thing that we're doing a favor or it's a charity or we're lowering the bar or we're helping, right? No, let's try and create a system where we are allowed to be in their rooms and being to succeed. And you know that. So yes, I completely understand with you. It is a different perspective that I come and it's a perspective that really informs the work that I do. Well, it's so important. And also as DNI professionals, we will talk about a lot of trends. We'll talk about typically the experience of a diverse person as X, but those are always this generalizing. So it is important right. to know that different people have different perspectives. You may, may hear Michelle or me say something that is a generalization, but we even recognize that within DNI and within how we grew up and on paper, we are both two black women who went to the University of Michigan for law school. Yeah. Right. In terms of types of people on paper, we are the same quote unquote type of person, but even we have. And started, both started in big law and left practicing, both of us. Both started in big law. And, and we could even talk more about this later in the podcast, but we're both also raising biracial children. We're both, you know, married to white men. And on paper, people might think, well, they are actually interchangeable, but actually our perspectives in life are, <laughs> are very different. So I'm sure we're going to kind of probe that more, but it's just something that I found. I listen to a lot fewer podcasts than Alexis. Does, so yes. <laughs> but okay. So go on and I'm a listener. This is a different podcast because I can't help but tease out Michelle's perspective as we walk through her path. And then soon we will talk specifically about her book, but okay. Jamaica, Trinidad to Princeton. Why law school? Why did you go to law school? Oh, that's a great question because I think the answer changes, right? As you get older and you reflect on your life. You know, when I went to law school, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer because I'd worked in the UN. I'd worked at a refugee, refugee agency in the UN. I'd worked for human rights and for indigenous rights in Peru. And both of them had told me that the only way that you are going to create change is if you become a lawyer. Like the only way that for the work that I wanted to do, which was to advocate for the rights of the dispossessed, the way to do that was to become a lawyer. And so that is absolutely 100% the reason I became a lawyer. I became a lawyer because I wanted to do international human rights. It turns out though, that international human rights is A, not as easy to get into as you, as you might think, but also I realized that I had no idea what any of it, and I, I had no clue. I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to do human rights work, but then I started, I was just like, oh, this looks interesting too. And this looks interesting too. And this looks interesting too. But when I think back on the reason I wanted to go to law school, which is to advocate for the right to the dispossessed, it's the reason I do this work now. It just took me a lot longer. I was going to say, it's the same reason. It's the same thing. Same reason. It took me longer to get here. I took a much more winding path, but you know, you end up in the same place. But that was the reason I wanted to go to law school. And then I get to law school and who do I meet on day one, Alexis? My husband. Day one of law school, I met my husband. It is my favorite thing to do when I go talk to like orientation programs at law schools. I'm like, look to your left, look to your right. That's who you might end up with for the next 50 years of your life. But yeah, Michigan was great. As Alexis knows, we had a great time at Michigan. I have to say that whenever a law student or anyone talks to me about international, almost anything, I'm usually like, I need you to get a lot more specific. Yes, you have Particularly, to. Particularly, or a college student, they'll, they'll put the word international on and you're like, but at the core of that... <laughs> What skills yeah. do you need to get before you can do whatever that is on the international scale? But mm -hmm. Michelle, I'm learning new stuff about you. I didn't know about that. Did you say Kazakhstan, Peru? Mm -hmm. Maya, yeah, Kazakhstan, Peru, Kazakhstan. Geneva. We had, I had to get out, girl. I had to move. I had to travel, and we still do that. I mean, I have traveled, I know, like over 100 countries at this point. Well, and just backing up quickly, you did all of that in college? Well, no, the first three were in, the first like five or eight or 12 were in college. And then over the past, what's been 20 years now? Yeah, 20 years traveling. Oh no, the travel, the travel I've seen. But I just mean those experience that you mentioned 
were all sort of like, were they like internship opportunities you did during college or? Princeton had some were volunteer trips, some were internships. It was all different, you know, different experiences that we found through Princeton and the people at Princeton. So it was all great. It was all ways to just get out. All I wanted, I wanted to travel and I wanted to, you know, change people's lives. That was it. Okay. So zooming a bit through, you get to Michigan, you meet your husband, you've started at Michigan. You're still like, international law, advocating for the rights of the dispossessed. But then what happened? You didn't. You you went to a law firm. And I didn't. Then I went to big law. <laughs> you know, and I will say, you know, well, because I had a lot of loans to pay off, which is the reason why a lot of us go to big law. But I also will say big law was able to, They when I, when I interviewed at Latham, which is a firm I started with, they did a lot of international human rights work. Ashoka was a really great client of theirs. They had the UN Global Compact as a client. And so they really did, they had a great refugee program. So a lot of the pro bono work that I really wanted to do was program that work I could do when I got there. And I did, because it turned out that when we started as Alexis knows in 08, there wasn't that much billable work to do. So I did a lot of actual human rights work for the, you know, the first six or eight months. And then it changed, it changed into, you know, what we know that we typically do with this, you know, big client and billable work. But for me, I mean, I spent three, four years at Big Law. I had the best mentors and the best sponsors, and I got really great work access. And it's from that experience that I started to realize, if you want to succeed as a Black person, and I specifically talk about Black people, but you know, any you know marginalized minority, you need access to the good work and the sponsors because the systems haven't changed yet to make it clear for everyone. And this is something Alexis actually had a really great post about on LinkedIn, like, if we, we got to change the systems, but until we change the systems, we got to let people access those systems to succeed. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right. So three, four years, big law. At some point you were like, I'm leaving and I am going to yeah, do what? Teach. How did you find that opportunity with the Illinois Supreme Court? Gosh, if I can remember, God, cause that was eight, nine years ago at this point, I think they just posted it. And they had just posted it in some, it might've been the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Now that I think about it, I think, cause I was reading that cause I had written something for them when I was at Schiff and I was reading an article. I think I saw the posting there and I interviewed and was it was bad. terrific. And that was that. And I learned so much through those seven years, so much, not just about, you know, diversity work, but really also about how to get buy-in from people who don't know that they need to change. I think that's the big thing because our our world was 90,000 lawyers in Illinois, right? And many of you may not know this in Chicago, but like the vast majority of those are solo and small practitioners. And when, you know, I count so many of them as my friends now, right? I've, I've gone to so many places around the state, so many places around, you know, the Southern part of our state. It's a big state with a really, 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 really diverse group of people who live here. And, you know, able to be able to reach out to them is key. You had me at how to get buy-in from people who don't know that they need to change. <laughs> that's Right. That's, yeah. uh, you could run a whole course on that. But also, you said it, but say it again. What was your specific role at the Illinois Supreme Court? What did you do there? I started out as the education associate. That was the first thing that I did. So I did a lot of the CLE approvals, a lot of the CLE work. And then as time passed, we wanted to get more into diversity. And I was already doing a lot of stuff on diversity anyway. So then I became the diversity education director. Holla out to Leslie Richards-Yellen in case she's listening to this, because she did a huge part in making sure that we had a really robust diversity mandate, as did our justices, who really, I mean, honestly, I have to say this again, I don't know if they're all available to this, but our Supreme Court justices in Illinois did a really good job of being some of the first in the country to really step forward and claim that diversity matters. In the legal profession, we are going to talk about it. We are not going to avoid the discussion and we have to engage with it. 
And they have done, I mean, they have promoted that nonstop for the past, I don't know, six years at this point. That's awesome. Or even longer, because we've actually had that diversity requirement in our CLE for, gosh, I don't know how, now I don't remember because I don't do it anymore, but we've had it for decades, right? And so really, it's a matter of being that, having that vision and having that boldness to say, this does matter. It is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. And we are going to make sure that people pay attention to it. It's a human rights issue. We are definitely coming back to that. And I'm going to wrap up the path part and we will transition to the the new book. And we, well, not even for you, the practice will be talking about DNI, but I'm shoving you into the framework of this podcast just to keep with the spirit of the show. But then we're going to let loose and just we're going to talk about diversity. But for me, it was interesting because I think at some point, you know, you went to law school together and I probably didn't talk to you for many, many years. I probably saw on something, whether it be LinkedIn or whatever, like, oh, Michelle, I knew you were in New York and then you came back and I knew you were at um, the commission and that you gained all these phenomenal skills and what like the messaging and how to get people who don't know how to change to change, but also delivering this content in an accessible way. And I, it was seemed like such an amazing training gr- ground for what you do now. But yeah, you said it before. We'll say it one more time. As of a few years ago, I think. Has it been two years since you've launched Inclusion Nation? Yeah. So that would have been April. And the story, and Alexis knows the part of the, you know, the stories I tell, you know, I talk about Trayvon, the reason I really wants to work on racial equity. I talk about, you know, Jasmine or her cipher. Her name's not really Jasmine. But the law student that I met who was talking about when will I be allowed to be Black, and that would have been like April, I think, or March of that year. And then really in 2018, it was that change. It was the podcast. It was the book. It was the, you know, it was the, Michelle, what are we going to do with our life now? Like, what is the next step here? And you know, how can we make sure that this messaging resonates with more people? And my, you know, I had a really supportive group of people at the commission who were just like, yeah, let's go, go do it. Go do it. Go change the world. And they're awesome. And they're still doing awesome things over there. I do remember this. I remember you being like, I'm starting my own company. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that would have been, that would have been September of 2018 when I started my own company. And, you know, we can talk about that. And is there anyone out there looking to start any kind of company? I'm happy to always talk about the lessons I've learned on that process. But it really was a matter of, you know, you have the community, you have the support. A lot of my clients are people who knew me from before and, who are really excited about this change as well. So making sure that you have the people who are like cheering you on and advocating for your success. And that was how I started. It was great. All right. So here we are two, two years later. Like I said, Michelle's now a celebrity DNI consultant. Ex- celebrity expert. legal, legal, legal. Expert. I do have, uh, I would say ha- only half of my clients now are law firms. And maybe like a third of them are now law firms. Two thirds of them are outside of law firms. But I will always, always come back to legal because that is that is what I know. That is, that is, that is, my, that is my stopping ground. Well, it is fantastic. And I mean, I'm just so happy I was able to get you to sit down with me today. So now let's do what we need to do, which is talk about this book. You mentioned that somewhere around the time period of all this activity of the Tribune article, the TED Talk, mm-hmm. someone approaches you and is like, hey, do you want a book deal? Like, how does that, how does That's that That's not how it happened at all. I oh, sent out an email. I sent out emails to, I think, three publishers. I had a great idea that I wanted to write about based on the Tribune article, based on, you know, there and it, and it also, it definitely changed, right? It changed from, you know, it started, I think, remember our NALP talk that we were talking about the Black Millennial? We did that like a few years back. So I think that had been the original idea that we were thinking about doing something for that. And then it shifted into, okay. But we need to pause on that completely because that you NALP talk- You forgot about that? No, but that NALP talk is actually the catalyst for me working in diversity and inclusion. So let's just say, because I also right. think Kevin from Yale- 
is from that NALP talk. I could be wrong. Kevin from Yale is so, from that NALP talk. So to catch everyone up in 2017, I think you- April 2017? Yes. Me, Courtney, Dredd, and Carter. Yes, yeah. who's over at Jenner. We got together and we did a presentation on recruiting and retaining millennial attorneys of color. It was for the NALP education conference at the time. I was still a legal recruiter. I focused a lot on placing diverse attorneys, but at that time I did not know that this was going to be my future. And we did a talk on what everyone needs to know about recruiting and retaining millennial attorneys of color. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's interesting how what that launched for you, what that subsequently launched for me. But what we did was we walked everyone essentially through a case study where we created a character named Kevin from Yale. And Kevin from Yale, for the many people who've you know been lucky enough to see you. To be fair, he wasn't actually from Yale. His name oh. was Kevin because but oh, he, just Kevin. we did not put him from Yale because You're right. he was at a lower ranked law school because we wanted to talk about why he chose that lower ranked law school. You're, no, you're absolutely right. The idea of Kevin was launched then, but I think so many people have now seen you discuss diversity Kevin. in their firm and racial equity and they've they've heard of Kevin. So it's funny, I was like there for a tiny part of it. But and I've totally lost track as to where I was even going, but I felt the need for the well, world. To know. Be, no, 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 because like that now program, like that was like, because one of the things that came from that now program, I'm going to fast forward back to now, right? Is that a lot of folks don't know what it's like to be black. I'm just going to say that, like what it is like to be a black attorney, right? And as I was writing the book content and I was thinking about that and I was like, that is the perspective I want to share. I want to share the perspective, not of here are all the different things that we can put into place that can make change. No, let me tell you what it's like to be black. Let me tell you what it's like to have a disability. Let me tell you what it's like to be LGBTQ+. Let me share the world from our perspective. And so it's the world from, I actually remember what, I think his name was Kevin, but the world from Kevin's perspective, which was, you know, he has, you know, he has a second job and he has a kid to raise, or he just chose a lower rank school because it gave him more money or the perspective from someone who has to be perfect and cannot stumble and knows if she says the wrong thing, she will get judged. These are actual people who are in your law firms and in your companies. Let's change it for them, right? And so it was that twist that I did for my book. It was a matter of you need to stop looking at this world. And I remember because I was thinking I could do about millennials and I was so tired of reading so this. many articles by this. baby boomers and Gen Xers saying, well, millennials are awful and they're terrible. I'm like, first of all, y'all raised us. So let's start with that part. But second, change the perspective, change the narrative. What is the perspective from the millennial? What is the perspective from the millennial of color? What is the perspective from the immigrant? So the work that I've done in this book and, you know, whatever version, I think this version 9,000 at this point, but like, the work that I've done in this book is to talk about that perspective. And for all people who see me talk this summer, that is the perspective I will always give you. I want mm -hmm. to give you the mm -hmm. other perspective because those are the stories that we need to hear. Right. So you sent an email and they said, okay. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I sent an email and the wonderful Kristen from Routledge and Taylor and Francis now, they said, sure, that sounds great. They were, she kept on checking in with me every month to see, you know, how I was doing. And as we got to like the date, which was like 18 months later, I was, I said, oh yeah, yeah, we're getting there. But then I started the company, right? So I told her we would probably have the book finished in December of 2018. And then Inclusion Nation started and Alexis knows this. I have been running nonstop ever since. It has been, I mean, it has, it started and it took off like, you know, I can't want to, I don't want to say wildfire. It took off and it just went in directions that I have mm -hmm. absolutely no idea where it would have gone. 
So it's been a great, great, great experience. But that book, yeah, that book, um, having that book, I think it's been on my LinkedIn profile for two years. I say my book is forthcoming, (laughs) but we finally finished it and we finished it earlier this year and then they published it. And, you know, sadly, it was even more timely than it was, you know, two years ago. Absolutely. Well, it's been fantastic to watch the ride. I will will say as I have stepped into these DNI roles in law firms and at Foley, I've had some people reach out to me occasionally and say, hey, have you heard of Michelle Silverthorne? Do you think we could maybe get her? And I'd be like, mm, I, maybe. Let me see what I can do. But we were fortunate to have you speak at Foley. I guess that was in July, and you made a tremendous yes. impact. And I think you're making this impact just across, you know, large law firms and other organizations. So I'm so happy to have you back because I want to see what other pearls of wisdom we can get out of you the mm. last, like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so of this podcast. Yeah. So, and I want to use your, I want to use your book. Alexis, do you know the, I was thinking of going back to that now program. Do you know the first person who called me after George Floyd's murder and after that, at that weekend, Courtney, it was Courtney. She was the first person who called me Monday morning. And she said, Michelle, let's talk. And then after that, you know, that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls after that. But Courtney Carter was the very first person to call me. And she said, we are, we have to talk about this. We have to make some change. And it's so that now program. I believe it. And mm-hmm. also like if I had a dollar for every time I saw your name shared on a law firm LinkedIn page, thanking you for speaking, I'd have quite a few dollars right now. <laughs> <laughs> you probably would have a lot of dollars right so, now. So I did, okay. But let's talk about diversity inclusion in the world and law firms, racial equity, but I want to do it through the lens of your book. So I have not received my copy yet, but- Sorry. I have seen the table of contents and this might sound weird, but Michelle, you had me at the table of contents. Okay. Great. So I've noticed that something you do and that I love is you broke, you break the book down by the old rules and the new rules for diversity. And so I'm going to say some of them and maybe you can say a few words and we can kind of see where this takes us. But one of the word, one of the rules you say is an old rule is just make the business case for diversity. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the, just making the business case? You no, know, this summer has been extremely hard and it's been extremely difficult. And I will say after the summer, I think I will never have to make the business case of diversity again. Hopefully not. I mean, maybe at least for the next you know year and a half, right? Here's what's wrong with making the business case. And we do it a lot. First of all, we make the wrong business case. So in the second part of the book where I talk about the new rules, I'm going to say, you want to make a business case? You got to make a real business case. You have to be specific about how it benefits you, not like some broad-based reasoning, right? So we'll talk about that as a new rule in a second. But for the first reason, the reason we failed the business case is because A, this business case, which is typically all these different perspectives, bring in different ideas, they do lead to greater innovation and they lead to greater profits for our organization. First, they do if you allow them to be different, but we're not because we're not teaching managers how to manage conflict. We're not teaching them how to organize different identities in their team, how to recognize that people of different races and ethnicities and religions come in with their different values and to make those values work in the work that they are doing. If we aren't doing that, then all the things about diverse thoughts and diverse perspectives aren't going to matter. They don't even exist. Well, and the business case is backwards most of the time, because for me to tell you, bring in diverse people, include them, you'll make more money. Okay, that logically makes sense, sort of, but actually the organizations that have these results that like the McKinsey's of the world document, the cultural foundations, the underpinnings of the organization, that's a result. The diversity is a result of this other stuff versus the diversity driving the improved outcomes and improved revenue. 
And we don't see that because it takes work to create that culture. And I put it as my old rule number one, because then here's what happens. You're going to say that diversity makes me more money, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in all this really great diverse classes because I'm only doing it because I think it makes me more money, right? None of those diverse classes are going to stay, by the way, because we don't do anything to actually retain them, but we're going to bring them in. But then you don't make more money. You don't improve your, your bottom line. You don't improve your productivity. You don't improve your profit. And you're like, well, okay, so I did bring in all that diversity. It didn't work. So clearly the business case has failed, right? Yes. Plus, why are we trying to create profit off of people? Like diversity shouldn't matter because of profit. Diversity should matter because you are a leader who cares about people. So if you want to go ahead and tell me that, you know, I'm going to see, you know, seven black people as widgets rather than as people, then I'm going to tell you that you're a leader who's failing. And if that's the business case that you are making, then that is a failed business case because I will tell you the fourth reason it doesn't work is because you will get resentment. You will get pushback. You will get people who have only bought in because you have told them here is the very surface reason why diversity matters. And there is zero investment across the organization. The business case makes me so angry, Alexis, if you cannot tell. So the one thing that I think from this summer that I will take away is that over the past four months and the 50, 60 webinars that I have done, I have not had to make the business case once. And I think that at least is some kind of progress. To completely agree with you, I am someone who can talk about the business case. I do find that the business case for some is like they're entrance to diversity, like their ear perks sure. up a little, I guess. But you're, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. We could both rant about it for a long time. So we're going to stop now, but who knows? We might pick up that rant in a few minutes. And I will say like, and if you go to my new rule, I think it's number two. It is number two because I wrote the book. It's number two. Let's make the real business case, right? Let's talk about when you bring in more black partners, how that will increase the likelihood of your black associates staying and succeeding and therefore becoming black partners. But that is not the business case we make. We are not specific about it. We don't tie it to business drivers. We don't tie it to what we want. We just try and make this broad case and then that's it, right? And I can tell you all the studies that McKinsey and Deloitte, but they, and all, all the, I mean, I, I list all of them in my book And then I tell you, we haven't made much progress on diversity, even though we have all these studies. So that's my old rule number one. Well, and we are going to talk about a few more of the old rules, and then we're going to get some of the new rules. But by the way, we're not talking about all your rules. People also need to buy the book, right? Read the book. Let's give give them a little preview. But okay, the next rule is make sure you mention that bias is okay. That's the next old, old rule. Old rule. Oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, you're fine. Everyone's biased. Everyone has bias. Don't, you're not five years old, y'all. Y'all can deal with the fact that we have biases. I don't need to talk it down to you. So that's my challenge with bias is that we don't talk about, and Alexis knows this because I have spent so much time this summer talking about why we need to dive deeper into bias, but you listen to so many bias talks and bias programs, and they're trying to treat someone like they're a child. And you're trying to tell them that, oh, it's okay that you have bias. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Everyone has it. It's fine. Yes, everyone has it. Yes, we can talk about strategies. That is all vitally important. But I need you to understand what it feels like, how it cuts someone down, how it makes you feel worthless, how it makes you feel humiliated. Do you want to talk about microaggressions and me using that very nice, polite euphemism, microaggressions? I will. But I will tell you what it really feels like when you suffer from it and how it will kill someone's career. So no, I'm not going to sit here and pat your head and tell you that, okay, you're fine. You're biased. It's cool. I'm going to tell you what it really does and how it is endemic at every level, a systemic level of your organization. 
That is really, really powerful because I want to keep moving forward. I will not comment further, but yes. Wow. Thank you, Michelle. All right. Another old rule is whatever you do, don't mention race. Don't talk about race. Yeah. Don't mention race. I mean, that's why I have a TED talk all about that, right? We, and this again is something that we have made progress on the last, you know, three months, right? We are talking about race and yet people are still really uncomfortable with doing that. And they are would much prefer thinking of themselves, and I will be specific, white people, that they are colorblind and they don't see color and they don't see race because so many white people have been socialized to believe that they don't see color and they don't see race. And that's why I have them do the reflective exercises in my book and my podcast and my podcast, my TED Talk, to have us realize that we do see race. And then let's take it bigger. Let's talk about systemic racism. This is what our nation is like on systemic racism And this is how all the systems of systemic racism have led to that. Oh, well, there are no qualified candidates. Let me break down the reason when you tell me things like you are lowering the bar, where that comes from, where that belief comes from. And that's how we're going to talk about when we talk about race. Well, and really when someone says I'm colorblind or I don't see race, what you're actually saying is you don't talk about race, but you do, you do see race. And then there's that issue of like, if you can't, see how we are different. You actually can't see my experience. And you can just think about different exercises. If I describe someone and all their accomplishments and I leave out their gender or I leave out their race, and you do a great job at this within your seminars, we have these default settings where we fill it in as like, it's probably a white guy. If I say, think of a doctor, you might think of an older white man in a coat. If I say, think of a pilot, you know, older white man wearing a pilot's hat. But now I add in black woman pilot. I add in black woman doctor, the experience this person had and even achieving that in our society is very, is very different. And I'm, yeah. at this point, I'm not ascribing good or bad, but I'm ascribing different. And so if you're unable to sort of truly see who I am and how I present in the world, you're sort of denying me of my, I even sort of, you are denying me of my experience. You are. And we could talk on and on about that. My race matters. It matters to me. It's this, I mean, I say this in the book, it is the stamp of my ancestors, it's the stamp of their survival. And it denies me entering into places and it welcomes me into places that feel like home. And if you do not see that, then you aren't seeing me and you aren't seeing the actual change you need to make to make people who look like me and who don't look like me succeed in your company. Yep. And so as people listen to this, and I think at this point, given the where we're in right now, there is more permission, I think, to talk about race. If anything, if anything has happened in the last, what now is it, four yes. months, there is permission to, to talk about it. But in some ways, you know, the reason I I have a job is this discomfort. It's because when we are, say, perhaps prepping for a client meeting and the client has made it very clear that they are focused on diversity and inclusion, that I am the one who says, well, I think we're going to want to address what we're doing when it comes to staffing people of color. And at that point, the partner's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you mentioned it. I wasn't quite sure how to raise it. And just Mm -hmm. learning that ability to be comfortable or at least back to the kind of stereotypical, like comfortable being uncomfortable. I don't know. I think that's getting kind of played out now, but it's okay. It's okay to see who someone is and and acknowledge that. And for those who are like, but how, what do I do? I say all the more reason to read Michelle's book or some of the many resources that have been compiled over the past few months. (laughs) The number one question, I mean, the number one follow-up course that we've been booking right now after, you know, we do the lot as we, I'll say we. Brooke and I are, are we, but the number one book course that I've been doing as a follow-up is, so you want to talk about race. So what do I say when I say the wrong thing? So it's like practical scenarios. Like someone walks in the black lives matter shirt. And then someone says, I have a make America great again shirt. What do I say? 
someone says that um, you are not seeing, you know, you are not promoting enough people of color into your into your executive suite. What do I say? Because that's what people need now, right? They know that they can talk about race, but how do they do it? What do they think about? What do they say? What actions should they take? So that's one thing. The second thing is going back to that discomfort. The how I like to view of these new rules and these old rules is it's like, and I say this when I do my design programs, right? It's like putting on a seatbelt. A seatbelt is not comfortable. We put it on every single day. We don't put it on every single day because we're like, oh, you know what? It'd be a great idea. We should all put on our seatbelts. We put it on every single day because in the 1950s and the 1960s, we had car manufacturers and then legislators tell us to put on our seatbelt. And we started putting on our seatbelt and it became a habit. I would like anti-racism to be a habit. I want us to, I want that partner who did not think about saying, what about the diverse staffing on this? To think that is the first thing that automatically comes to his mind. I'm going to think about diverse staffing every single day, every single time, anytime it comes up, it becomes a habit, right? And so if we can create those habits, then we can change the world. But the only way to do that, honestly, you can start by waiting for people to change and that's great, but you can also put into place systems that make them change. Yes. And you know, you're talking my language, you talk about systems because for me, I separate DNI work into two types of work, the changing hearts and minds, the, we're going to have is a question. We bring Michelle, we bring you in, you say something compelling. I hope it causes people to self-reflect and maybe on their own accord to work on changing their own heart and mind. Maybe. That's hard work. That's long-term work. A lot of that is life's life work. Like that's the stuff you're going to do for the rest of your life. But then there is the systems. There's the, what can I put in place that causes you, maybe it's a checklist, put, put on my seatbelt. Maybe it's an email that tells you, put on your seatbelt. Maybe it's a requirement that, and those are the things that result Makes in immediate, put on your seatbelt. Yeah, immediate behavior change, whether or not the heart and mind has been changed, that maybe later will cause your feelings stories, emotions to correspond with the behavior change. But yeah, I could rant on that for a very long time. You're talking my language. Yeah. That's exactly why this book is in two parts, right? The old rules are all about here are all the stories and the feelings and the reasons that we need to change. And then the new rules are here are the systems we got to put into place, right? Here's the rule I would like you to put in place as an organization to make sure that when people know that, okay, I have this hiring pool and it is, you know, not just, it has one woman and zero people of color that is wrong. And I don't need someone to tell me that I have to change that. I know that I'm going to change that. Exactly. Well, and let me share a couple of your new rules. Maybe you'll say a few words about those. And then I did, even though we're going a tiny bit long, I wanted to sneak in a quick, like, ask Michelle before we we sign off here. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the new rules, Now I'm going to read the first three. First one is make the people case for inclusion. The second one is want to hire the right fit, use competencies to find them. And then the third of, and there's more than three rules, but the third new rule is build a community that works for your marginalized employees. Yeah. Those are all really great rules. I wonder who wrote them. Those are just brilliant. Really smart person wrote them. (laughs) You know, I put that first rule down because I want people to stop centering DEI on folks' comfort. Like if they're not comfortable with it now, they're not going to be comfortable with it later. You can spend your whole life waiting for someone to be comfortable with something. The reason I put that as the first rule is because I wanted to completely contrast with if you are a leader who is doing this, you got to center the work on the people who you are leading. And the people who you are leading are the ones who are, and it's kind of like the phrase, the Black Lives Matter, like whose house is on fire right now? The house that's on fire right now are your marginalized employees. And if you want to make sure that you are a leader who's not just saying, oh, I'm only doing this because it makes me more money or because people are widgets, I am doing it because people want to succeed. They would like to belong here. They would like to be valued. 
And as a leader, I'm going to let allow people to do that. I'm going to put systems in the place that will allow that change to happen. And so I list a whole bunch of ways you can start with that. But at the very core of whatever you do as a leader, you have to start with the people. You have to, have to, have to start with the people. And then that goes into the next thing. You want to look for the right fit? Great. Everyone wants to find the right fit, right? They always want to find the, the right fit for us. But if you are only hiring the right fit for the in-group, then people in the out-group are only ever going to make it just when they get lucky or just when they get fortunate enough for someone to open the door just a little bit so they can come in. So create your competencies. That's fine. But if you're creating your competencies, make sure that you're following those competencies. Make sure that you are using them for your promotions and your hiring. Make sure that you follow them. And the last one is when I talk about employee resource groups and sponsors, like this is how we actually make employee resource groups work. This is how we make them meaningful and not like your free DEI consulting arm, right? They are not your free DEI consultant. Employee resource groups exist to support your marginalized employees. Let us use them to support your marginalized employees and then give them the support and the resources and the financing and the backing to make them matter. Same thing with sponsors. Until we change the systems and the pathways to success, allow your marginalized employees to have sponsors too because your majority employees have them and they've had them for years. You have to create a system for your marginalized employees to access that as well. It is not enough because we still got to change the systems. But until we do that, you have to give them the guide so they can succeed too. So powerful and succinct, I think. I'd say actionable, but it's going to take work. It's going to take change. And then as you also talk about being focused on people and that people aren't widgets, there also is this just broader transformation of work. And in a lot of ways, our workplaces are still based upon as if we were factory workers working nine to five. And if I'm just pressing a button all day, I don't know if it matters if I feel included. I don't know if it matters if I'm, you know, having to use a lot of my energy to cover certain things about myself. But now for you to channel the creativity and the intelligence that you need to give clients the best work product, that's why all this stuff matters. And actually, that's why ultimately diverse organizations make more money. It's because that other stuff is happening first. Yes. And it, but okay, let's try to do in the next, I don't know, three minutes, because I'm sure you need to run to Michelle. You're doing all these presentations. What are like the top handful of questions you're getting? And what's your like 30 second, 60 second response? Maybe we'll start with just, just two before we go. Let's do 30. We'll do 30 seconds. We can do it. We can okay. do more questions in 30 seconds. Okay, ready? What if I say the wrong thing on race? I really want to talk about race. What if I say the wrong thing? You're going to say the wrong thing. When you say the wrong thing, apologize for it. Repair the relationship. Learn to say the right thing and then make sure none of your people in your peer group say the wrong thing as well. That's the first one. Second one I get, I am not a black person. I am not a white person. What is my role in this movement? What is my role in this struggle? What is my role in this fight for justice? The fight for justice includes everyone. Justice is not pie. We don't all just get a piece of it. We don't get just get scraps. We all get it, right? So think about what networks you have access to. Think about what ethnic groups or what identity groups you are a part of. How is injustice perpetrated there? How is anti-Blackness perpetrated there? What are the words and the phrase and the actions that you can take as an individual? Whatever platform that you might have as an individual, how can you make change in your groups and how can you make change as part of your larger organization? But also recall that justice for one is justice for everyone because that is how justice works. Third question I get all the time. I I'm dealing with microaggressions. I don't know what to do. And it's a supervisor who is doing it to me. What can I do about it? I listen, I have very, I mean, first of all, I just say to people, 
go get validated by someone else. Like you need to go and find some friends and your group of people, your community, your ERG, and share with them this is happening because often what happens is that you feel like you're being gaslit and you feel like you're being told that that's not true. Of course, no one said that to you. Go find people who you know will validate you and know that, oh yeah, that's what happened. Okay, let's talk about that. You know, they won't tell you that you were wrong or that never happened to you. If you decide that you would like to engage in a teaching moment while still preserving your career, why, and Alexis knows this, why is the most powerful question you can ask anyone. Ask why. If you want to continue with that, remember that you want to continue engaging in the learning process or the teaching process. Listen to what they say. Listen to their response. Share with them why it was incorrect. Share with them what a better response would be. Model that for them. And then tell them, you know, make sure that they go share that with others. Ideally, that would happen. Often it doesn't. Go find an ally. Go find someone at that person's level who can share on your behalf, who can speak up for you. So again, your career isn't affected and isn't hurt. Those are the top three questions that I have. Is there anything else, Alexis, that you have seen that you would like me to address in 30 seconds? Can I reach out to my Black colleagues? If I, I'm a white person, bad things are happening. Should I reach out? How do I reach out? Sure, reach out. Don't reach out. You know what? If you don't know at this point whether you have Black friends who you can reach out to, you're not going to suddenly find them in the next like 30 days, right? So if you have Black friends who you would like to reach out to and just say, I'm outraged. This is upsetting. I'm doing my own work of learning. My door is always open. Please feel free to use it. Thank you. That's it. If you don't have and you just have Black colleagues who you have never reached out to and never talked to, people you've seen in the elevator a couple times, you could also say the same thing. But just understand that that's kind of going to come across as performative. It just is, right? You can give all the support that you want, and it's great to give support. But if you don't have a relationship with this person, they're probably not going to talk about racism that they've experienced. They might appreciate you reaching out or they might not. I don't know who the person is, but you know, it's worth it to try, but recognize if you do try, it might come across as performative. You might not have the effect that you want. They may not open up about you about the racism they've experienced, but y'all, we are in this to support each other. We are in this to create empathy. We're in this to build a community that works for everyone. So please do not be afraid to reach out. But when you do say that you are doing your own work of learning. Do not ask them to play devil's advocate. Do not ask them to answer your questions. Do not ask them to show you why their Black life should matter too. Just say that you are there and you are willing to help and you're willing to do the work. That's all. There you go. Four questions. That is perfect, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With that, I will we'll wrap up. I'll just say once again, I appreciate you being on the, on the podcast. And if people want to find you, is inclusionnation.org? Is, is that the best place? michellesilverthorne.com, michellesilverthorne.com. That's the only place to find me now. And you can always read the book on Amazon. And unless you're like Alexis and you know people, you can buy Kindle books too, right? I mean, there, there's no backlog on the Kindle. It shows up in 30 seconds after you hit buy, right? So buy it for your friends, buy it for your less friends, buy it for your bosses and your leaders, buy it for your entire team. It's a, I think it's a great book, but it's a lifelong effort. I just like real books. I know you do. I, I I wish I could help you with that. I can't. I can't. I cannot remember the last time I bought a print. I'm just going to say that. But how do you? Never mind. I only buy Kindle we'll books. Take I this only off, buy Kindle we'll take books. this offline, Michelle. We'll take this offline. We're going to take this offline. All right. Offline. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Alexis. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. 
Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.